The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. One of the interesting aspects of working as a chaplain is the increased number of times that we are exposed to the mystical happenings that go on every day in people's lives, but rarely get discussed unless someone asks. Asking such questions and the answers we are given are like the orthodox icons, which the orthodox describe as windows into heaven. These experiences are windows into heaven for the experiencer and for those who hear the story as well. Our guest today, the Reverend Susie Gowie, is a volunteer on-call chaplain I work with at our hospital in Bangor, Maine. Susie holds a BSLS degree from Excelsior College, where she majored in mental health and human service. She also holds a Master's in Divinity from Bangor Theological Seminary. She is ordained in the United Church of Christ and is currently the senior pastor at Monroe Community Church, UCC. Susie was born in Hawaii but grew up around the world as a military brat and a military wife. This gave her a much wider view of the world and its people. Her interest in cultural religion and spiritual practices has uh, opened her to her own understanding of being an empath. And as an empath, Susie has experienced other persons' pain, joy, and trauma. She has had several episodes of spiritual possession by angels as well as visions of things before they happen. She experienced her own near death as a child and once again as an adult. She has had conversations with those of the spirit world, usually family members who have passed over to the other side. And she has also experienced physical evidence of a spiritual connection to another person. Uh, Susie lives in Bangor with her husband, Art, of 47 years. Art, by the way, works with us as a hospital chaplain as well. They have two adult married children and two grandchildren. Susie, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Um, Susie, I want to get into what it means being an empath, but perhaps we could begin with your near-death experiences. Okay, that's fine. Um, when I was about four and I was at uh, the local base pool, being a military kid, and I had seen older children floating around in the black inner tube. And I had one of those um, circular float devices that was split in the back so you can open it and put it around your waist. Well, I thought I could do what the big kids were doing and just kind of sit in it. And I just remember thinking through. And then the next memory I have is being very peaceful and being surrounded by just this bright, sparkly light, like somebody throwing glitter in front of a, uh, a lamp or something. But being very peaceful, I wasn't afraid. Um, I don't remember thrashing around. Um, and then I don't remember anything after that. I do not remember being rescued or brought back to life, uh, any of that. Um, mm. The one thing out of that that people always say to me was, you know, assume that I was afraid of water after that. I was not. I was very taken to water after that and going on to become a water safety instructor for the military. And um, 
I had no fear. I had no fear of death from that moment on. I was never afraid to die. Mm-hmm. Um, my other experience was as an adult, and I became very, very ill to the point of uh, almost dying. And in fact, the doctor had taken my husband Art out of the room, and he said she could die. And um, and I remember I was in so much pain. I just wanted to be out of pain, and and praying and saying, you know, I just, I'm ready to die. Just take me, I'm ready to die. And I was, I was at peace with that. If I died, I died. I was at peace with that. And I remember praying, if if I am to get through this, I please give me a sign that I am going to be okay. And at that moment, I felt lifted up from the bed I was in in the hospital and just being held in this warm, very warm embrace. And I was very much at peace that either way would have been fine with me. And um, and being a person who suffers from Raynaud's disease and cold all the time, being warm like that was very significant to me. And uh, so just having that sense of being lifted up from the bed, that I was suspended above the bed and being held in this warm embrace was very peaceful. And again, one of those moments of, um, you know, I could stay there. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to come back. And I didn't talk about this for a long, long time. It was a very personal thing. And I didn't share this for years, uh, this experience, because I treasure these experiences that I've had. Mm. So that's, those are my two near-death experiences that I've had. And, uh, Did you remember the one from four years of age, um, right along as you were growing up, or were you reminded of it when you had your second experience? No, I remembered it. I mean, I remembered, I always remembered, uh, the, the light aspect of it, the, the, the wonderful sparkly light that was very peaceful, just this very peaceful presence. And I think it, it just, uh, stayed with me. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it, um, and it wasn't something that, that the family talked about. We didn't talk about it. It was a kind of a, a moment that happened and then just got kind of tucked away. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I was never afraid of water and, uh, loved water. And I don't know if it was because of having that peaceful experience in the water, uh, took away any fear I might have of being in water. Do you, do you think that, um, those experiences or that, or at least that first experience led you in the direction of, uh, studying mental health? No, that no that that experience though did help um, cement for me or enrich for me my call to ministry, and uh, and I've known since a very young age that I was called to do something beyond myself for other people. I've always known that, and good uh, um, starting at that age, I ran around dressed like a nun. <laughs> <laughs> so you must have had a, a pretty rigorous Christian upbringing. You were raised in, among other places, Turkey. Um, you've was, told me my my parents my parents were very strong Christians. My dad comes out of the um, the Methodist Episcopal Church of the South, and my mother was raised a very strong Methodist here in Maine. And um, and we went 
we grew up in military chapels. We were very faithful to church, um, you know, perfect attendance pins and certificates and all of that. And depending on the chapel, the chaplain at the time at the base gave us the type of service we were going to have. So I experienced everything from high Roman Catholic to uh, Pentecostal to Reformed Dutch, depending on the chaplain. And yes. um, But my family was, I always tell people, I was, be, I, I am a Christian because I was raised by Christian parents. However, if I had been born and raised in a Muslim country, I would be a Muslim. If I was born and raised in uh, a country or uh, even a state that is more Roman Catholic than it is Episcopal or Lutheran, that's probably what I would be. And I, you know, our culture plays a big piece in, in our spiritual life as well. But having experience living overseas, growing up outside the United States in Morocco and Turkey and then to Spain, Italy and Greece and Japan, and I was always curious about um, the, the spirit life and the culture of the country. country. Plus our parents were, my dad's line was, Uncle Sam is paying to be here for the next two to three years. You will learn everything you can about this country, but you have to remember you are a guest in this country. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was always very curious. I, you would usually find me seeking out the houses of worship, even at a very young age. And Were you, um, were you able to attend uh, services at a mosque, for instance? Did you have, as you were growing I, up, did you have Muslim children you played with? Oh, yes. And I, I went, though I was not supposed to, because I would go in the men's side. <laughs> and I would stand in the back, uh, because I knew I was not supposed to be in there. Um, but I would wait till after the prayer services had started, and I would sneak in the back, and I would just listen to the rhythmic sound of the prayers and be mesmerized by it, and plus the fact that the men seemed to have much more intricate, the beautiful rugs that they had than on the women's side. And uh, so all of those little pieces played a part for me. I'm a very visual, tactile learner. So to go in the mosque and see the beautiful mosaics and the beautiful rugs and stuff also played a big part for me. But I grew up with Muslim friends and Jewish friends and, I mean, I think just about every culture you can think of. Uh, and, uh, but we were, very, we were taught to be very open, that my father always said, you know, you look at the heart of the man and not the outside, and and uh, and my mom was one that she wanted to go and see and do everything she could, no matter where we lived. So we were very immersed in the culture where we were. And, uh, so, so this would uh, this would probably enhance your capacities as an empath. And when did you first uh, realize that you had these more than uh, more than ordinary empathetic, empathetic uh, reactions to other people's? Alive. Uh, it, it, I think when I start thinking back after talking to you earlier, thinking back, I think it started when I was probably either eight or nine because my brother, my younger brother at that time was almost totally deaf. And I became responsible for him when we were at school because he, we were in the same school system, same school building. And he struggled so much that I could be in my classroom you know, two halls over from him and all of a sudden know that he was in trouble. And I would say to my teacher, can I go down and check on my brother? 
And usually I would find him sitting in the hall crying and saying oh. that the teacher yelled at him. And it mainly because he couldn't hear. And so, of course, she raised her voice because she didn't know he couldn't hear. We didn't know at the time that my brother was almost deaf. And so I had these, these very strong connections to my siblings. And I would have instances like that. And then became very aware as more and more of these type of things would happen. I would get either a vision or a sensation, I need to call somebody because something has happened or something's going to happen. Um, I had an incident with my, again, with the same brother, but he was now in the military and he was at boot camp years later. And I had a dream or a vision that he was surrounded by fire, flames. And I reached in my, my hand to grab his hand and pull him through the flames. When I woke up, I had second-degree burns on my arm. I was living in Japan. My brother was at Great Lakes, Illinois. Wow. And I called my mother. I immediately said to Art, I have to call my mother. And I called, and I said, is David okay? And she said, yes, we just got a call that says that he passed out in the chow line with a fever of 103, and come to find out he had the measles. And Hmm. so he had, had the spots and stuff on his arms and stuff. And she said, how did you know? And I said, I woke up with blisters on my arm. And, uh, uh, so, uh, which, you, which you saw as a fire, but it was really his fever that you were feeling. His fever. Hmm. His fever. And I needed to get him out of there. I needed to get him away from did you te- Did you tell him that you'd had this uh, experience? Yes. And what did he think? He, um, he, um, very moved by that, but all of us kids, and my mother too, my mother was an empath, and it goes back to her family line, and my grandfather had visions, my mom had visions, and um, my sister does, and my both my brothers do as well, and we're very connected as a family, um, as mm. far as knowing that something is up, you know, as you give them a call, something's up. And so you, do you think that uh, this ability is a, uh something that's gained genetically, something that runs in families? I I think of it as a gift, but I think it does get passed down because I'm, I'm a great believer because we are made of energy. And the energy has to go somewhere because you cannot destroy energy. And mm. I'm a firm believer that if you are involved in somebody's life, when they die that energy has to go somewhere, especially if you were in the room when they die, that it has to go somewhere. And I do believe that we absorb that. And I and I do believe that when, you know, we are involved in a relationship with somebody, whether it's blood or, uh, you know, like through a husband or a wife or a good friend, there is that connection. And, and if you're open to it, um, there's even more of a connection. There's a stronger connection there. But I do believe it does pass down through uh, families. And um, and I think I think probably most families have it. It's just they don't open themselves up to it. Mm. And it's a matter of opening yourself up to that possibility. I mean, because we don't use most of our brain anyway. But um, I think it's there and more people are open to it than others. And as a, a practicing pastor and chaplain, you're opening yourself to a, a much wider uh, range of people and their problems and their need for empathy than, you know, just your family. Yes. 
Yes, uh, very, very true. And and I think that that is that is true of uh, a large portion of caregivers that um, that they they may not be able to label it as being an empath, but um, I do believe that that's why they're drawn to particular uh, vocations or uh, things like that. Is because they are empathic and and they. They understand another person's pain or joy or whatever, and, and want to help if help can be given. Now, being an empath also uh, means that you're vulnerable to uh, uh, spirits trying to uh, possess you in one way or another. Tell tell us some of your experiences there. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you some I'll give you the good ones first. Uh, okay. <laughs> I was work, I was working in a nursing home and uh, taking care of an elderly lady and and. Um, she rang the bell in the bathroom for emergency, and I ran in, and as I came into the bathroom, she said to me, thank God the angels have arrived, and at that moment, when she said that, I do not remember anything until 45 minutes later when I am bending over the bed, and I'm tucking her in and checking her oxygen, and she said to me, thank you for letting the angels use your body you are going to be sore tomorrow. And she said, your angel wings were beautiful. The thing is, is this woman was totally blind. She's been blind since birth. Wow. And and I I said, you know, was kind of okay, and just checked everything, make sure her oxygen was fine, whatever, and I left the room. That night, I woke up with such pain between my shoulder blades, and I was sore, like bruised sore between my shoulder blades for at least two days afterwards. <laughs> and I've had that happen twice where somebody says an angel took possession of you, um, and I'm thankful that you allowed that to happen. And mm. uh, so it's um, that's the good stuff. The bad stuff is that you have to be very careful, and I understand the scripture where Jesus um, had cast out the, the evil spirits into the herd of swine. Because if you have physical contact with someone who is struggling with an evil spirit or possession, we are the conduit, conduit for them. And when I was helping with an exorcism with a, uh, a priest, he said to me, if you touch them, do not break contact until after we have completed the exorcism. Because if you do, you will be the, you will have whatever this is, in you. And mm. so I remember, you know, holding on to this person, and he kept saying, don't break contact. And I was in a lot of pain at that time because the pain from from her mind was going into my body. And, uh, and it knocked me to the floor. When I touched her, I was knocked to the floor. But he said, just hang on, hang on. And, um, and I've had others when I'm praying, doing healing prayer, laying on a hand of, being very aware of uh, what the person is feeling, whether it's joy or sadness or pain. And I now know to be very, very careful and and say to myself, I bind this and cast it out so that it does not become bound to me when I am doing laying out of hands. And I don't necessarily say it out loud, but I say it to myself, and God knows what, I, what I'm saying and what I want him to do is just to protect me from whatever it is we are trying to bind from that person. And, and I've had that happen on many occasions. I've had that happen, and I'm very aware of it. 
Would you call would you call this uh, demonic, or do you think that's an actual evil spirit, or is it a uh, something lacking in the spirituality of the person that's going through it? I think it can be a combination, Lee, because um, it depends on the person. Uh, if you know, I've had worked with people who have no clue that there's something wrong, and they just know that they're struggling and they can't. I mean, they not necessarily that they have an addiction or anything like that. It's just that they go, there's just something not right. There's something not right. And so we pray about it, pray about it. And and I I think it's the uh, wrestling with the angel type thing, you know, um, because I will say to them, name it. Give it a name, because if you name it, you take the power away. And so be a namer and... and uh, because of, if, if you name it, then you have nothing to fear of it because you know what it is. And, and then there are others that it's just um, sadness, deep sadness, so it's a spiritual wound for them that needs to be healed. Um, I had a gentleman that was, uh, was praying with, he asked me to, to pray with him, and, and he was just sobbing, 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 and he didn't want me to touch his hands. And, he, and I said, why? And he said, because these hands have killed somebody. And I said, do you want to tell me about it? And he told me what happened. And he said, I took a life. I don't deserve, I don't deserve God's love. I'm not worthy. And I said, we're all not worthy. And I said, what do you do now? And he served his time and got out and he was on this retreat with us. And he said, I'm a baker. He says, I bake bread. And I said, I want you to look at your hands. I said, you know what? I said, these are not the hands of a killer because you've given it to God. I said, these are at the hands of a life giver because you bake bread. I said, you now feed people. I said, that's where your focus needs to be. That you are done with the past and you've come into the light and you now feed people. And, and he, it never occurred to him to think of it that way. And I think that's being empathic allows us to do that. We're, we're able to see the pain, but also see what needs to be done to relieve that pain, or at least help in some way. And uh, But it does get weary. It gets tiresome after a while. Soul-weary, I call it. So, doing, the wor- doing the work? Doing the work. Yeah. Doing the work. Um, I so admire hospice workers because they're right with the person through the last stages going uh, over to the other side and um right. and they they encounter so many uh I I guess I'd call them empathetic situations that it must be exhausting but uh such so worthwhile so important that uh, this work yes. get done. Yes. Are there any other stories that you uh, they come to mind? Uh the the one that I would like to share that I, I really haven't shared with anybody other than uh, two of my siblings is when my mother died. And um, I happened to come in. I'd been away, and it, she died over at Eastern Maine, and they took great care of her. And my mother was lucid right up to the very last breath. And and I came in, and, and my brother, my brothers were sleeping in chairs, and my father was sleeping by my mom's bed, and my sister was out in the waiting area. 
And I came in and I, I went over to my mom and I said, you look tired. And she says, I'm very tired. And I took her hand and um, I said, are you in any pain? And she said, a little bit. And I said, do you want something? She goes, no, no. She said, I just, let me just sit here. So I held her hand and I, I said to her again, I said, mom, if you're tired, just lay back and close your eyes. It's fine. She says, where is everybody? And I said, you know, Jimmy and David are behind me here on the chairs and dad's beside you. I said, Liz is out in the waiting area. She said, so you're all here. I said, we're all here, Mom. I said, are you tired? And the third time, it was not her voice. It was the being standing beside her bed that said, yes, she is very tired. And at that moment, I watched my mother as a young woman pull the covers back, step over the side of the bed, and this being take my mother's hand and pull her clothes, and my mom turning and looking at all of us, and gone. And wow. um, and then when I looked down at the bed, my mother was just laying there, still holding my hand. Her body was, anyway. And so I went and got my siblings to say this was it, because we, we had to make a decision to let her go. She, she decided that she didn't want any more care, any more intervention care. And so later I said to my brother, I said, did you hear mom? He said, yeah, did you see the creature, the being? And I said, yes, I did. And he says, wasn't mom beautiful? I said, she was very beautiful because she was young and healthy and no pain. What did the being look like? Uh, like the one that always comes to me when someone I love dies. Oh. I have a particular angel that comes to me, messenger, and... Uh, it's a, it's one of those that when you try to really look at it, it changes from kind of, I would say, an androgynous type thing. That, you know, at a quick glance, it looks like a woman, then another glance, it looks male, and, uh, but dark curly hair, tall, very tall, uh, not powerful like you think of a warrior, but a strength there that you can rely on. And, uh, just, kind of a flowing robe, uh, light, and just peace, just, but always, I I had this creature come one other time when a very, very dear friend of mine died, and I woke up, opened my eyes, and they were leaning over my bed, and they just said that Matthew was gone, and then they were gone. I got, made a phone call, and his mom said, yes, he just passed, so, but, uh, as a pastor, have you been able to use these experiences in your um, in your church and your teaching others about uh, Christian religion, uh, or is it too, or do they consider it too strange? It, again, it depends on the person. Um, I have mm-hmm. used some bits of the examples from, uh, like, tuck them into sermons or whatever. And then one on one, if I'm talking with someone, and and um, you know, so that I talk that way with them, and uh, and let them know. I mean, I always say, do you stop and listen for God to speak to you? Because the experience of losing my cross and and hearing this voice say, "Go home and talk to my daughter," and I went home, and, and my daughter's standing on the front porch with my cross in her hand that I had lost, and uh, so it's. 
And I say that to them, you know, we need to take the time to stop and listen to that voice of God for those messengers to come to us, that we all have that ability. We just need to hone our ability to do that. So, But some of us are, I think, open from the beginning, from, from birth, and mm-hmm. um, just, you know, it's just there. And it, it's not a... Uh, it's never been a frightening thing. I've never been afraid of anything. The only thing I was afraid of was when I was doing the exorcism. But I'm, I'm not afraid of my part in it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not afraid that this happens to me of, of having visions of things that are going to happen and then have them immediately happen afterwards. Um, uh, I, the, there's no fear there. There's no fear of death. There's no fear of, of, uh, you know, the dark. I'm not afraid of the dark. Uh, mm. And uh, it's, uh, it's just, for me, it is what it is. And, yeah. you know, hopefully oh. I have used it for good. Yeah. Well, certainly, certainly, uh, I do believe you've been using it for, for good. Uh, Susie, we're, sadly, we're out of time. Okay. But I want to thank you so much for sharing your encounters with the other side with uh, with the audience. And uh, let me tell them that if they'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, they can go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS, go to that website at iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.